0: Let's turn together, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Before we spend time together in God's Word today, I want to remind you about our church membership covenant book. If you were not able to be here for our charter service and sign the book, I know some of you were traveling or were away for other reasons. I have it here. We'll keep it here in the building, and if you would like to to sign today because you were unable to. Uh, And again, this is for people who were formerly members of Berlin Presbyterian or of North Point or who have recently completed our membership process. We invite you to uh, come and sign, and I'd love to be there with you when you do it so you can see me afterward. We'll make sure that you have access to that. Last week, Pastor Rick began our new expositional series through Paul's letter to the Colossian Church. And what we mean by expositional series is that we are going to go verse by verse through this book. That has been the custom of our church and it will continue to be. We believe that as we come to the word systematically, verse by verse, that we will get all of the counsel of God over time. We are committed to that because when it really comes down to it, you don't need to hear the opinions of our elders, you need to hear from God. And as we go verse by verse through the Scriptures, then it is our responsibility to put in front of you what is there, to help explain it, to illuminate it as best we can, and then trust that the Spirit will enable you to say, that's right, that's what's in front of me, and I have to respond to that. Or conversely, if we ever say something that's not there, you should say, that's not there. Um, Maybe don't raise your hand during the sermon But afterward, uh, come talk to us, and maybe we'll see something we didn't see before. But we go verse by verse through the Scriptures as an act of thankful submission to God and His wisdom. And so we continue today in Colossians chapter 1, starting in the middle portion of verse 5 down through verse 8. I invite you to silently follow along while I read out loud, this is God's holy word. Of this you have heard before... And the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the Spirit. And may God bless to our minds and hearts his holy word. You'll see behind me on the screen our title today for our time in God's word, and that is this the gospel, which Paul illuminates here and elsewhere, the gospel, which is God's power to transform. How many of you, this is not rhetorical, so let's interact a little bit. How many of you, either currently or in days gone by, have found obeying God, remaining true to Him, and treasuring Him above all other things difficult? How many of you, either currently or in days gone by, have found obeying God, Treasuring him above all of the rest is difficult. Let's do it again. Okay, like I often say to you, if you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. (laughs) It's hard, right? It's hard. It's hard to love God with all of our mind and heart and strength, isn't it? It's hard to love our neighbor, and let's just parenthetically illuminate what neighbors are your wife, your husband, your children. Everybody has like a nervous energy when I say love children, right? Um, your grandchildren, your difficult neighbor, the difficult family on your travel sports team, your coworker, your boss, your employee, your mom, your dad your ex-spouse. It's difficult to love all of those people, isn't it? And the reality is God calls us to love perfectly. To love Him perfectly. To love each other. Even the most difficult among us, perfectly. Now, He knows we won't But He calls us to this, and this is the Christian life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. We are called to this kind of expectation. And oftentimes, if we are being honest, sometimes because of our own ignorance, and I don't mean that pejoratively in any sort of way. I mean ignorance in a very dictionary kind of way, just we don't know better. Sometimes because of ignorance often because of bad teaching and leadership, and often because we still live in the flesh and we struggle with sin, we find it difficult to love God supremely and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Oftentimes, we think of the gospel merely as a gateway in other words, it is the initiation, the gospel, which means good news. It's, it's the good news that we can come back to God in relationship. It's a gateway to restored relationship with God. But, but the gospel is so much more than that. In fact, it's the best news. It's good news, but it's the best good news. Because it is not only gateway, message of restoration and reconciliation to our Creator against whom we have sinned. But the gospel is also pathway. It is God's power not merely to reconcile us to Himself in restored relationship. It's more than the promise of justification. This foundational Christian doctrine that we were at one time guilty But now, once by faith we have received the righteousness of Jesus, we are acquitted of our sins. It is that, but it is more than that. It is God's power not only to reconcile us to himself and to justify us, to acquit us of our sins, but also to enable us to do all that he has commanded us to do. In Colossians the entirety of the letter, reveals to us and proclaims to us again and again that the gospel is gateway, but it is pathway. And if we leave it aside merely as something we have passed through in history gone by, we will be constantly frustrated that we are unable to love God supremely and our neighbors as ourselves. And so what Paul does in this short letter is profoundly point out to us that the gospel is simultaneously gateway and pathway. It is God's power to reconcile, and it is God's power to actually change us. You have heard me say this before, a number of you, that St. Augustine many, many centuries ago prayed famously, Lord, grant that which you command. What does God command us to? To love him supremely and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we are being honest, we find that to be very difficult. So Augustine in his prayer is saying, Lord, you have called us to this kind of life. You must enable it. In Colossians chapter 1, the middle of verse 5 down through verse 8 is just one of the places that we will explore in the coming months in this short letter to the Colossian church where we find this to be true. The overriding thought of these verses is this. The gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promises to us. An author that I love, we've had him here to the city before to lead a short conference named Jared Wilson... He is on the faculty of Midwestern Seminary out in Kansas City, used to pastor in New England. He recently said via Twitter, Twitter's good for some things. It's terrible for most things. It's good for some things. He recently said on Twitter, you know, we don't even have bootstraps. You have heard it said before that we are left sometimes to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps and, and walk along. But the reality is, we don't even have bootstraps. And this is why the gospel, my friends, is such good news. It is God's powerful commitment to fulfill His promises to us. You don't have to to cut any of us very deeply for us to bleed legalism. It is so easy for us to look at those who make up all kinds of rules in Christian contexts and see them as nutso. You've been around these kinds of people before, or maybe you grew up in those kinds of contexts where the Bible in and of itself held out expectations for us, but your particular religious context made up all kinds of other rules. Things you were supposed to not drink or not eat or so forth and so on. And it is very likely here in Colossae that that Jewish legalists were creeping into the churches or at least influencing those who made up the church and telling them that, yeah, Jesus is, is necessary, but you must add something to him if you are going to find a right relationship with God. And Paul, with stern grace says to the Colossian church, that is not true. Because Jesus plus anything, as Pastor Rick said to us last week, equals nothing. If you try to add to Jesus to somehow find favor with God, either initially or throughout the progress of your life, you will find yourself to have nothing whatsoever. And the gospel is God's powerful, and may I say, radical commitment to fulfill his promise to us. But we love to contribute. You've also heard me say in the past that we have this American cliche, that there is no such thing as a free lunch. In other words, somebody always has an angle on you whenever they offer to pay the bill after your meal. But the reality is a better american cliche if we really understand the existential condition of americans is this nobody wants a free lunch you might think you do but really you don't you you want to contribute something and so do i and the reason the good news is so necessary is because there's really bad news and the really bad news is that i'm a sinner born into this world, separated from God. And the only way that I can be reconciled to Him, and furthermore, the only way that I can actually worship Him and glorify Him in the day-to-day living, is if He enables it. My friends, this is why the gospel is such good news. Because I can't reconcile myself to God, and left to myself with no bootstraps, I can't maintain my fellowship with God. And those of us who love law, we may think we don't, but those of us who love to contribute, who don't like the message of the bad news, will be frustrated often with a passage like this. Because there are no imperatives. There are no commands. In fact, for the next number of weeks as we work through Colossians chapters 1 through 2, we are just going to be reminding you again and again and again of the promises of the gospel. Now, we will tease out implications for how you might respond to it, but if you are wanting five steps to this or three keys to that, you're not going to get a lot of that. And in God's wisdom and authority, that's how he designed this letter. Before he gets into what we are to do, he talks about who we are. And I want you to settle in a little bit today. I even invite you to to just take a deep sigh of relief. You might want to take notes so you can review them later, or you might just want to sit back and drink in the love of God that is revealed to us here in this passage. My friends, the gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promise to us. Another way to say this is the gospel is God's commitment to us to not leave us where we are. Are you all that you want to be? Do you treasure God supremely every moment of your life? Do you love your spouse and your children and your neighbor and your parents and your in-laws and your exes and so forth and so on as you wish you'd did. Are you who you want to be? Why the gospel is such good news. It's more than gateway, it's pathway. It's God's powerful commitment to not leave us where we are. Where do we draw this kind of language at the gospel is power? Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul was not ashamed to preach the gospel because he knew that in doing so, God would actually do powerful things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Marty led us through this a bit ago. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, so initial gateway, we are justified, acquitted of our sins, reconciled to God in relationship. But we are also being saved, we're being transformed. The gospel for us is the power of God. He goes on in that same passage in verses 22 through 24 to say For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ. The power of God. And the wisdom of God. This means that whenever we. When we just expose the word. For what it is. And don't just give you our ideas. But, but work through the scriptures systematically. The power of God is unleashed. And it's a marvel. To watch it do its work. There's two thoughts. That. Paul gives us under the primary thought of the passage. And here is the first one. This gospel, which is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promises to us, is first of all, the latter portion of verse 5 and into verse 6, this idea. It, it transforms, the gospel transforms as it is made known and taken up by faith. And this is why. In the institution of the church, the teaching of the word is the center of the liturgy. I've said this to you also in the past. This was one of the radical changes in the Protestant Reformation where the altar, which used to be at the center of the architecture of the church, took somewhat of a, another place and the pulpit came to the center of the architecture of the church, It used to be off to the side. If you go to old, old churches in Europe, you always find the pulpit off to the side because the preaching was subsidiary. But because of the commitment to the Word of God in, in the church of God, even the architecture changed over time. This is why we give the bulk of our time to the teaching of the Word of God because in it the gospel is made known. And it should be in one way or another that you hear the gospel over and over and over again every single time we gather together. And the gospel is more than just Jesus died for you. Ask him into your heart and you will be saved. In fact, that in and of itself is relatively uncareful language. What does that even mean? What is the gospel? Let us clarify that. For in this section that we are studying together today... Paul calls it in verse 5 the word of the truth. It's a discrete set. It is one singular message, and there are not many gospels. There, There is one. Now, in the Colossians' experience, others were giving them other gospels, but they weren't the gospel. There is one gospel that the eternal Son of God took on human flesh, fully God, fully man, without sin. Dying in our place, was buried, and rose again victorious over sin and death, and now is at the right hand of the Father. And gives us full access once again to the Father if we will trust Him by faith alone. That is the gospel. You should hear that all of the time. But what you must also be hearing all of the time, and you should be hearing all of the time... Is that the gospel that I just explained to you is the hope for us for not just gateway into the family of God, but enabling us to live in the family of God. You should be hearing the gospel all of the time. Luther was asked famously, why do you preach the gospel to us all of the time? Why aren't we moving on to something else? And Luther replied, because you forget it all of the time. You and me both. The gospel transforms, according to Paul, in verse 5 and verse 6, as it is made known and taken up by faith. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 10. A bit of an extended section, but an important one. I encourage you to follow along. Romans 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So this is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. Moses wrote those. But verse 6, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. People perhaps wanted the very presence of Christ to give them his good news. Paul says, in essence, we don't exactly need that. Verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, the gospel, in other words. Because, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, verse 14, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Notice the sequence of logical thought here. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How are people saved? By believing on Christ. How can they believe? They have to hear the good news. Who is to give it to them? We are. Are we their hope? Are we the object of their faith? The answer is clearly and flatly no. Jesus is. But we are his instruments, his mouthpieces. And when people hear the word of God, not all, but some will believe because God powerfully is committed to saving lost people through the gospel. We are often pessimistic in our perspective and what Jesus is doing in our midst. Our nation is increasingly becoming post-Christian, which for some of us freaks us out. But I want you to be optimistic about what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the church of Jesus. Jesus. And it may well be, my friends, and I know this is hard to hear, but it may well be that we need to live in a post-Christian world if the gospel is actually going to permeate anyone's minds and hearts. Because the gospel has become so eclipsed and added to that often it is obscured and people don't actually know what it is. And the church has become so bloated, has become so distracted, That the gospel has become assumed and often tragically discarded. And it may well be that in a coming age for us, the age of our older years and the age of the prime years of our children, that perhaps the gospel can shine more clearly. Because we will have to stand up for what we actually believe. Because marginal and nominal Christianity won't cut it. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. I just want to hint to you that, that you can be optimistic even in the midst of, of persecution and opposition. The gospel is power, and God will always honor his gospel. But he's doing this around the world right now. Conservative estimates of the number of Christians in China is upwards of 60 million. 60 million. And some missional experts believe that perhaps by the year 2035, there could be 200 million Christians. Do you know that in 1979, there were perhaps 500 Muslim background believers in the country of Iran? This was their political revolution, if you remember. But do you know that right now, Iran is the fastest growing evangelical church in the world? That more Iranians have come to faith in the past 20 years than the previous 1,300 since Islam took over. There are estimated 300,000 upward to 1 million Christians now in the country of Iran. We have no reason to be pessimistic. The gospel is power, and God transforms by it. And this is what he is saying in... Colossians chapter 1. Look with me back in verse 5 again. Of this hope laid up for us in heaven that we have heard about in the word of truth, the, the singular gospel. It has come to the Colossians and to us. And indeed, Paul says, and the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. And despite the opposition to the gospel, Through Paul's and the rest of the apostles' preaching, the Roman Empire couldn't stop it. It spread in power. And my friends, it is still happening today. But not just around the world, in our own experience. Follow along in verse 6. Indeed, then the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. Then he says at the end of verse 6, As it also does among you. In other words, it is becoming gateway for people all around the world, from all kinds of religious persuasions who are coming to faith in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, because no one can come to the Father except through him. But among us who have already embraced it, who've already come back into a reconciled relationship with God, it's bearing fruit among us too. We will get to this eventually in verses 6 through 7 of chapter 2. But notice in these very important verses in Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. question must arise as good interpreters of these verses. How did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? We didn't pay for it. We didn't earn it. We didn't merit it. How did we receive Christ Jesus the Lord? By so, if we are to walk in him just as we received him, how do we walk? By faith. So, Iranians, people in China and sub-Saharan Africa and all around the world are coming to faith. And finding their lives restored and renewed. And, and we ourselves are finding the same thing. Even if we came to faith in Jesus decades ago, any progress we have is because of the power of the gospel taken up by faith. So again, the gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promises to us, and it transforms as it is made known and taken up by faith. But the question is, is how? How? And also, in what ways should we experience this? Well, that's what verses 7 and 8 tell us. So, the other thing that Paul wants us to know from these verses is that the gospel transforms our desires and our actions. So, if the gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promises to us, to not leave us where we are. The first thing he says to us in verses 5 and 6 is that the gospel transforms as it, is made known, as it is made known and taken up by faith. But then the question logically is how? Well, that's what he tells us in verses 7 and 8. The gospel actually transforms our desires and our actions. I encourage you to turn with me to Jeremiah 31. I'm going to lead us through a logical sequence of thought that the scriptures lead us through. Come to some application at the end. You know the history of Israel, right? God made a promise to Abraham. That he would build a nation through him. And through that nation, bless the world. That nation that would come several centuries after Abraham's death. Was Israel. God gave Israel all of his covenant promises and and showed his favor to them uniquely and supremely above all the peoples in the face of the earth. But how faithful was Israel to her covenant keeping God? Not very, right? Not very much at all. You would find occasional generations, seasons here and there where Israel showed relative fidelity and faithfulness to God. But by and large, Israel's experience as a cautionary tale, that mere external calling to conformity to a law, to a standard, won't work. And God knew this. And so he calls them to a new covenant. He promises them that a a new and better covenant is coming. And that's what Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 33 explained to us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel on the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. In other words, I gave them every benefit, and they didn't keep it. But notice verse 33, and this is one of the best news verses in all the Bible. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. At Sinai, it was just over them. But I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God gave them tablets of stone that that had the law on them. The problem is they had a corresponding stony heart that would not respond to those tablets of stone. What had to happen? That heart of stone had to be replaced with a heart of flesh, but God went further. He didn't just give them a new heart. He actually, in a sense, tattooed his law on their hearts. But it didn't happen in the old covenant. It would only happen in the new covenant. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give us new hearts upon which the very law of God would be etched. The promise of the new covenant that the prophets gave us is actually even better than that. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel goes further than Jeremiah. Beginning in verse 22, God tells Ezekiel to tell Israel this. Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, because they had been scattered. God told them, if you obey me, stay in the land. you disobey me, I'll scatter you. But notice how Ezekiel goes further in verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. Sounds like Jeremiah 31, right? But then Ezekiel goes further, and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, verse 27, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's way better than the old covenant. Not just a law hanging over us, calling us to obedience, but God's law put within us and God's spirit, the third person of the Godhead living inside of us, enabling us to actually obey so that we would be caused, caused to walk in his statutes, and we would become careful to obey his rules. That, my friends, is wonderful, beautiful news. The gospel is much better news than almost any of us can possibly comprehend. And if you only see it as gateway and not as pathway to enable us to actually obey glorify and enjoy God you're missing the goodness of it and that is why Paul teaches us what he teaches us in Ezekiel 30 or in Colossians chapter 1 and i say to you my friends there is great beauty in this gospel is beautiful news not just good news beautiful news the promise that, that the person that I am, that I still struggle being, the person that I don't like very often, the, the person that, that still struggles with sin, the beauty of the promise is that I won't always be like this. I'll be transformed. And I know this because I've already been transformed. I'm not who I used to be. Now, I am not who I want to be. I am not the man of faith I want to be. I am not the man of commitment and passion for God and others that I want to be. I will be because the gospel promises me that God's power will transform me into that man. Jesus takes this up in John 14. Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified. And he says to the disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That, that makes us a little anxious because this external thing is hanging over us. But notice what he goes on to say I will ask the Father. And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus commands his followers to obey all that he had taught them. Then he promises them that the Spirit will come. And it'll be like Jesus is actually with them because they won't be orphans. Because where the spirit is, Jesus is. And he will actually enable all the things that they command. That's, that sounds a whole lot like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, doesn't it? This is when it is enacted. I remember a number of years ago, I think it was around 2009, um, I had a free evening. Whitney was doing something with Jack, our eldest. And Sam was about two years old. He doesn't remember this because he was only two. And we went over to uh, the Alum Creek Mountain Bike Trail, the Advanced Mountain Bike Trail, just north of Cheshire Road. And it was toward dark, and I thought we would, you know, hike in a mile or so. He was, Sam's always been super active, so he could do that back then. I thought we'd hike in a mile or so and then hike back out. But largely because it was getting dark, and um, there's a lot of mountain bikes on this trail, so I didn't want to get run over and have my little two-year-old squish like a bug. But that night, for whatever reason, there were a lot of bikes on the trail, so we just kept going. And it was a beautiful night. I'll never forget it. It was a very special night with my little guy. But after about a mile, he was, he was about done. You know, his legs were only like this long. And he couldn't make it. And I knew that if we kept going, because once you get about halfway in, you've just got to keep going. It's about six miles long. Um, I put him on my shoulders, and I carried him the last five miles or so. So if you were to ask me, what did you do that night? I would say my son and I took a hike. But the reality is, I carried him most of the way. And in a lot of senses, my friend, this is what Jesus is saying to us in John chapter 14. I'm calling you to walk with me. I'm calling you to obey me. But my friends, I won't leave you alone. I will actually make this come to pass. I will enable it. And that's wonderful news. I'm going to give you a couple passages that I would encourage you to spend some time in this week. We won't take time to do it today. I often do this so that you can have some further study for your week. But in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, this very thing we're talking about today is what Paul teases out and outlines in Romans chapter 8. This idea that That we who are freed from the power of sin, Romans 6, still struggle with sin, Romans 7. So how do we actually obey and glorify God? That's Romans 8. And it's all about life in the Spirit. This is what he also says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. If we want to obey God, we must keep in step with the Spirit. If we want to bear fruit for God, we must rely upon His Spirit. And I think this is what Paul is trying to tell us in Colossians chapter 1. Notice in verse 7, this is our text. Paul says to them, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, fellow, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul has a singular and a group focus in verses 7 and 8. Singularly, Epaphras who had heard the gospel, perhaps directly from Paul, and had gone back to his hometown and preached the gospel and started a church. And what happened as a result of that? A whole group of people were transformed by God's Spirit. So that they weren't who they used to be. As we know from later in this letter, and also Paul's letter to Philemon, Epaphras was radically transformed forever. Paul had a companion in Epaphras that was uncommon. In fact, it got to the point that Epaphras himself was imprisoned, willing to live alongside Paul for the sake of the gospel. No one is willing to undergo that kind of radical sacrifice unless something internal has been transformed. Epaphras was transformed by the gospel. And because Epaphras was transformed and made the gospel known, just unleashed it, what happened? It powerfully transformed a church, and though we don't know the full history, impacted an entire city, and this letter resides for us today so that we can experience the same. The Lord Jesus has intentions not just to call us into a reconciled relationship with the Father, but to a transformed life, but He doesn't just call us to it externally. He gives us His Spirit, and He enables it reminded of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And it's easy for us to say, well, those people are a really bad lot. Well, notice Paul's words. And such were some of you. He goes on to say, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Here it is again and again. God reconciles us to himself through the gospel of his Son, enabled by and empowered by the Spirit. The gospel is fully Trinitarian. God the Father rescues us through God the Son and enables and transforms us by God the Spirit. We don't have any bootstraps. We are given hope through the power of Christ and His Spirit that has taken up residence inside of us. And the reality is if we are being honest in quiet moments, we often feel like orphans who are just called to transformation knowing that we have no power to actually follow it out. That's your, if that's our perspective on the gospel, that's not very good news. But if the gospel actually is, God intends to bring us back into relationship with himself and to lead us to the point that we enjoy him supremely and glorify him in practical daily living, and he actually enables that, That is beautiful news. I say to you, the gospel is God's powerful commitment to fulfill his promises to us. He will not leave us where we are. It transforms us as it is made known and taken up by faith, both initially and onward through our lives. And it does this because through the gospel, God actually transforms our very desires and our actions. Epaphras isn't who he used to be. Colossian church isn't what it used to be, and Paul wants to remind them, don't give in to a gospel of good works, because that's no good news at all. Keep walking by faith in Jesus. I think, by way of implication, this is why we place such a great emphasis in our church on, on discipleship, and with this I will close. We have to be oriented consistently toward this good news. Oftentimes, my family will vacation out in Colorado, and we drive all along the way because it's super expensive to pay for plane tickets for six people, so we might as well just drive. So we drive. And sometimes as you go through Kansas, you will go through huge, probably hundreds if not thousands of acres of sunflowers. And no matter what time of day you drive along I-70 through Kansas, through these ginormous fields of sunflowers, their heads will always be turned toward the sun. They're, they're heliocentric. They always turn toward the sun. That's what discipleship is. It doesn't have to be that complex. We, we in discipleship are trying to orient those we are helping toward Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not, that, it's not that complex. So, so that's why the church exists. The church exists to orient you toward Christ so that you will hope in his good news and find, find help for your transformation. Now, you have to obey, right? We're not giving you some let go and let God kind of thing. Faith is always active. You, you must follow it in obedience. Obedience is not a curse word. But obedience is enabled by, fostered by, and beautified by faith. So if you need help, if you aren't who you want to be, and you're finding it difficult on your own to make the progress you know you should make, let us help you. My friends, it just looks a whole lot like friendship. It looks like friends getting together one-on-one or one-on-two or three and, and spending time orienting each other back toward the gospel, the beautiful and good. And through it, finding ways to walk by faith practically as we learn to obey God enabled by his spirit. So Paul was concerned that the Colossians were going to leave the gospel and set it aside for something that masqueraded as the gospel, but really was just a call to self-effort. Problem, this, this perilous danger that was around in the first century with the Colossian church is still around us today. My friends, though deep down none of us want a free lunch, we know the gospel calls us and enables us. So let us together, corporately as a body, and individually and in small groups, find ways to orient each other toward the beautiful news of Jesus, through which we are transformed and reconciled to God and changed forever in practical acts of worshipful obedience. May God be pleased to accomplish all of this. In Lord Jesus, now by your Spirit, thank you for the good news, which is far better than we really imagine, and I pray that through it, you would transform us in all the ways that are needed, change our minds, change our affections, and may we glorify our God by the Spirit that you have put within us. So, make this good news beautiful in our sight. And we walk by faith for your glory, for our mutual joy.